Bam 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 you were Did perfect. I'm, I'm trying to match, um, without listening to it, the theme song intro note. Ma. Great. Congratulations. Thank you so much. This is Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. That's my co-host, Lisa Linky. That's my co-host. <laughs> This is a podcast where we review a popular self-help book each episode and talk about how we feel about it. I'm sorry, are you high right now? (laughs) If you like what you hear, go buy the book and enjoy it. If you don't, it's no sweat off our backs. Have you? It's certainly no sweat off of yours. Did you drink some CBD oil? The point is, we're reading the books so that you don't have to. I don't know what's happening. You can go on enjoying your busy life. <laughs> Still getting the perspective-altering self-help advice that your family's been begging you to get. I just want to point out that your family's been begging you to get is what it says. I do want to point out that every time I do the intro, you laugh your ass off. That's right. You just did the intro. That's right. You did laugh your ass off. I think you giggle at intros. I do. And also, I was trying to mix it up for variety. Oh, oh, cinema verite. Yeah. Now that we are several episodes in, I thought, let's kick this professionalism up a notch. Let's talk in our... Quiet voices. Oh, now, see here. I'm about to tell you something. What is that accent? <laughs> it was a transatlantic. Oh, now, listen, you here, mister. Oh, uh, yeah, something's coming in over the wireless. <laughs> um, <laughs> can we get started? <laughs> yes. Um, okay, a little bit of business before we dive in. Mm-hmm. Um, as you may or may not have heard in the intro, we read self-help books on this podcast. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. So, a little bit of business. Uh, we would love it. If you have been enjoying the episodes you've heard so far, please take 30 seconds, not even 36, like 10 seconds, go on iTunes, subscribe, rate, review us. Um, Reviews and ratings are super helpful because it helps other people find our show Mm -hmm. because it it puts us higher up in the rankings when people are searching for self-help or for self-help podcasts. And if you write a review and you write it sooner than later, you won't look like a Johnny come lately, you'll look like a Johnny came first. Yeah. Or like a Betty go lightly. <laughs> but listen, if in bonus points, if your review is funny, maybe we'll read it on the podcast. <gasps> oh, da, da, dang. oh da, 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 dang. Gauntlet thrown. That's right. That's right. But the idea is like, maybe that'll someday give us more resources to do more cool shit for you guys. Yeah. So if you're loving it, pause right now. We'll wait. We'll wait. Welcome back. Hey, we're so glad. Thank you for doing that. That was really cool. You're the awesomest. Lisa, what do you have for us this week? Well, I also just want to remind people that I typically do not like self-help books. Oh, yes. If you are tuning in for the first time, it is important to note that I, myself, Misty Stinnett, I'm very susceptible to advice. Oh, you you like you like to seek advice. I love a good piece of advice, and I, I assume I know everything. That's right. Lisa has a problem with authority. I fought the law. If you have heard uh uh you are you are a badass episode or the big leap episode, you will hear 
Lisa does not like being told what to do. Uh-uh. No. I can doffen it. That's right. <laughs> Which she will do you, to you on the street. I will. That's right. Okay, but today I am bringing to you drum roll. <laughs> a real drum roll. All right. Uh, daring greatly. Colon, how the how the courage to be vulnerable transforms the way we live, love, parent, and lead by Brene Brown, PhD, LMSW. Oh, snap, A, B, C, D, y'all. This is a number one uh, New York Times bestseller. It's published in 2012, and it's had over a million copies sold. Oh, my God, a million. <laughs> oh, wait, I don't know why I thought that was a huge number. In my mind, it was 100 million. <laughs> Um, this book is beautiful. It's like gray with like an ombre yellow to blue going yeah. through green, daring greatly. Well, and I feel like this book has been on fire since it came out. Because yeah. Bre- Brene Brown has a couple of TED Talks that mm-hmm. are really great. I feel like she's been on a lot of Oprah's, Oprah-related Oprah stuff. Oprah loves her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So let me read you her bio from inside the book. Um, her YouTube TED Talk, uh, her TED Talk on YouTube has 9.2 million views. Yeah. Um, wow. So she's a research professor at the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. She has spent the past decade studying vulnerability, courage, worthiness, and shame. Her 2010 TEDx Houston talk on the power of vulnerability is one of the most watched TED Talks on TED.com. She's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, The Gifts of Imperfection. I thought mm. it was just me and Rising Strong. She's also the founder and CEO of The Daring Way, a teaching and certification program for helping professionals who want to facilitate her work on vulnerability, courage, shame, and worthiness. She lives in Houston with her husband, Steve, and their two children. I didn't know she lived in Houston. Shout out to Houston. What's up, Houston? Well, and also, I didn't realize this was her fourth book. Yeah. Um, although, I, this, this was in 2012, so um, I think... Rising Strong is after this. This is oh, her third. Oh, got it, got it. But still, I didn't realize that she had, and I think she's got even more Dare to Lead and, and other ones now. She does. Yeah. You're right. Great. Um, so uh, just as an FYI, if mm-hmm. you were interested in purchasing, the Kindle version is $13.99, the paperback is $9.97, the hardback is $14.45, and Audible, read by Brene Brown, is $24.50. Or a credit. And I did, I think, uh, full disclosure, which mm-hmm. I always like to disclose, mm-hmm. I did listen to this audio book, oh, God, I don't know, three years ago, yeah. four, four years ago, yeah. like close to closer to when it came out. I don't remember a lot about it, but I do remember that she has a very pleasant speaking voice. She's just a delight to yeah. listen to. There's yeah. a hint of a lilt. Yeah. Hint of a lilt. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to give you a quick overview of the book, um, and then I'll talk about the chapters, and we'll dig in. Digging. Digging. Shovel ready. You digging it? I'm digging it. So Daring Greatly, the title, comes from Theodore Roosevelt's speech, Citizenship in a Republic, which is often referred to as the man in the arena. Mm. Oh, and yeah, I he love gave that. this speech at the Sorbonne. Sorbonne? Sorbonne. Sorbonne. In Paris um, in April of 1910. And here's a specific passage that made this speech famous. Um, And you're just going to have to pretend that I'm Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. 
The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short and again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I love that quote for a hundred different reasons, not least of which is how much shade he is throwing Mm -hmm. at critics and people who don't have skin in the game. Yeah, he's basically saying, if you don't do it, don't critique it. Yeah. I'm not going to listen to people who aren't also doing it. Yeah. So when Brene read this quote, she thought, this is exactly what I've learned over a decade of researching vulnerability. She says, vulnerability is not knowing victory or defeat. It's understanding the necessity of both. It's Mm -hmm. engaging and it's being all in. Mm -hmm. Um, So she kind of defines vulnerability. uh, She says, it's not weakness and the uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure we face every day are not optional. Our only choice is a question of engagement. Hmm. Our willingness to own and engage with our vulnerability determines the depth of our courage and the clarity of our purpose. The level to which we protect ourselves from being vulnerable is a measure of our fear and disconnection. So really, unlike the opposite ends of a spectrum, our vulnerability and engaging Mm -hmm. and fear and disconnection. That just makes me think of how to be, to let yourself be vulnerable and open yourself up to potential hurt is actually the brave thing to do. It is. Whereas not engaging can seem brave on the surface, but it's actually not the cowardly thing to do, but it's the easier way out. Well, it leads to a less fulfilling life mm-hmm. is her, her, her thing. So she says, the book sets out to answer these questions. What drives our fear of being vulnerable? Mm-hmm. How are we protecting ourselves from vulnerability? What price are we paying when we shut down and disengage? And how do we own and engage with vulnerability so we can start transforming the way we live, love, parent, and lead? Hmm. So there's seven chapters. Um, chapter one is scarcity, looking inside our culture of, quote, never enough. Chapter two, hmm. debunking the vulnerability myths. Chapter three, understanding and combating shame. Chapter four, the vulnerability armory. And I'm going to spend most of the time on those four chapters. Great, great. Chapters five, six, and seven are all about um, what to do when you kind of have a great grasp on that. So sure. it's, uh, chapter five is mind the gap, cultivating change and closing the disengagement divide. Chapter six, disruptive engagement, daring to rehumanize education and work. Great. <laughs> chapter seven, wholehearted parenting, daring to be the adults we want our children to be. And Ooh. then there's plenty of research citations, acknowledgments, and even an index. But the first four chapters are like the foundational philosophy, and then the others are kind of like step-by-steps? Yeah, like, well, not even step-by-steps. The last three chapters are more like a challenge to leaders cool. and to parents and to educators, I would Great. say. Great. So chapter one, scarcity, looking inside our culture of never enough. What is vulnerability? How does she define it? So vulnerability, um, she doesn't talk about that till chapter two. Oh. But um, – I can wait. You can? Yeah. That's very cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So chapter one. Um, so she just talks about how our culture is never enough in this idea of scarcity, which is kind of rampant in, mm-hmm. in our in – our, 
culture. And she's like, I think that this idea of never enough is kind of what's causing a lot of um, problems. And she's like, if you look at people, they're always on their phones. They're always taking selfies. They're you know, blessing themselves on social media and promoting. And we keep hearing about narcissists and is narcissism mm. this problem? And it seems like it is. She says, but if you look at narcissism through the lens of vulnerability, it's basically just the shame-based fear of being ordinary. That's right. So she wow. says, yeah, sometimes wow. the simple act of humanizing problems sheds an important light on them, a light that often goes out the minute we put a stigmatizing label on it. Mm-hmm. So the minute we hear narcissist... When somebody is taking a selfie, we're unwilling to see, oh, they're worried about being ordinary. You're right. We completely write them off. We completely write them off as people who don't have problems and who are just so into themselves that it doesn't matter if they do have problems, but they're just lonely and want to be validated. Or maybe not even lonely, just craving validation, reaching out in that way. Yeah. So – this idea of never enough, she's like, it starts the moment we wake up. I didn't get enough sleep. I wonder if I'll have enough money in the bank. Mm-hmm. You know, will I have enough time on my mm-hmm. commute? Um, mm-hmm. So we're really kind of in this mindset. And then when it comes to, like, all of our social media, she says comparison and constant assessment is self-defeating because we're comparing our lives, our marriages, our families, our communities to this unattainable media-driven version of mm-hmm. perfection, or we're holding up our reality against how we think somebody else has it. We don't even know what yeah. it is. And she says nostal- nostalgia is dangerous, too, because we're holding it up against this idea of perfection that probably didn't exist. It's the way that we're just looking at it. Yeah, the romantic it. lens viewing yes. the past. Yeah. You know what this makes me think of? Mm. The Fire Festival. <laughs> I just watched so, that documentary. Did, well, did you watch the Hulu one or the Netflix one? The Hulu one. Yeah, I watched the Hulu one too. And it is like, it is incredible how many people bought into this thing that didn't exist and couldn't exist because the social media and the aspect and the exclusivity of attending this incredible music all exclusive festival on an island. $10,000 for a ticket. More than. More than just to get a like a private villa for the weekend was like a hundred grand. But anyway, it's really interesting the lengths that we'll go to to make ourselves not feel ordinary. Yeah. Or perpetuate some kind of it is never enough. Yeah, and even if you even if that say that fire music music festival was not a fraud and everybody had a great time, then what's the thing as soon as you get back? What's the, the thing after one. that? What's yeah. the next thing after that? Well, are you curious to know what she thinks the source of our scarcity? Is? Yes, I am. She says worrying about scarcity is our culture's version of post traumatic stress. Like as a culture. How we're hand like what what that looks like, so oh. our culture has post traumatic stress syndrome, and what it looks like is worrying about scarcity. She's like, I don't know what it comes from. Whether it's nine eleven, whether it's oh, multiple she says wars, she doesn't know what it's from. Whether it's natural disasters, the recession, but we've had like a string of things that are stressful on our culture, mm-hmm. and so this this source of scarcity. Is coming from that. Like, our culture has PTSD, basically. That's so... I'd never thought of it that way. She says there are three components of scarcity. Shame, comparison, and disengagement. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, here's one of my favorite things she said. The counter-approach to living in scarcity is not abundance. Oh. Yeah. I love your face. You're totally surprised. It's living in wholeheartedness. So, it seems like we would expect, oh, if I'm living in scarcity, I should just live in abundance. Mm. But that also is the flip side of the coin because it's also not realistic 
to live in, you know what I mean? Abundance is also kind of crazy. So I also don't know what you mean when you say live in abundance. Yes. Yeah, so let me see if I can pull this page up here. Um, well, and while you're, while you're searching for the page, I think something that's coming to mind for me is like how you were just saying how like we scroll our phones from the moment we wake yep. up and we're always looking for this and it's never enough. I feel like something that myself and a, a ton of my friends have been missing is being able to live in the present moment and finding contentedness, practicing yeah. contentment. Or connection. Be- or connection mm-hmm. because it feels like I can get it for a second and then it goes away. And mm-hmm. I, I'm sure our brains are being rewired from all of that reward stimuli every time we check a text message yeah. and scroll Instagram or whatever. But um, yeah, yeah, it's resonating. So she says that uh, – the counter approach to living in scarcity is not about abundance. In fact, I think abundance and scarcity are two sides of the same coin. The opposite of never enough isn't abundance or more than you can ever imagine. The opposite of scarcity is enough, or what I call wholeheartedness. So I think the same problems would exist in abundance mm. that, that does in the scarcity, and that you probably still have comparison. Mm-hmm. You probably still have disengagement. And you mm-hmm. probably still have shame mm. because those things are – if you're not having wholeheartedness. Now, I think you probably can have wholeheartedness in scarcity and wholeheartedness in abundance. But if you're lacking wholeheartedness, that's driving both of those. What does wholeheartedness mean? What a great question. So um, – there are many tenets of wholeheartedness, but at its very core, this is from her her book on page 29, at its very core is vulnerability and worthiness, uh, facing uncertainty, exposure, and emotional risks, and knowing that I am enough. Mm. So when she studied all these people around vulnerability and shame, what she learned, and she talks about in that TED Talk, is that people who uh, had shame had shame resilience, yeah. uh, had vulnerability, survived yeah. anyway. They had this quality of what she calls wholeheartedness. Mm. So wholehearted living is about engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. And vulnerability is the core, heart and center of meaningful human experiences. Wow. Yeah. Because, yeah, because if you feel like you at your core are worthy and you at your core are enough— then there's almost no rejection you couldn't bounce back from. Yes. yes. Failure that you couldn't accept. Like, that's really interesting. Yes. So um, the, she says the greatest casualties of a scarcity culture are our willingness to own our vulnerabilities and our ability to engage with the world from a place of worthiness. Oh, it's so interesting because it feels like I keep the visual I keep having come to mind is like a cake that's made of cardboard. There's nothing inside of it, but we keep decorating it with like yes. beautiful icing and yes. flowers and sparkles and sprinkles. What a gorgeous image. Oh, thank you. But it, it makes me think of like the fast fashion industry and yeah. how we're all trying to like have the latest trends and the latest things. And it's always literally the fashion industry is designed to make you feel like yeah. you are left or out fast of Fast food about how it's cheap food, but it really is at the expense of all the people who work That's there. That's right. But it's like, it's like we're always striving to attain worthiness from something outside of us. Yeah. From an external source to yeah. give us credentials and gravitas, yes. Yes. but it has to come from within. Okay, so now we're ready to debunk vulnerability myths because 
we've kind of set the table for looking inside our culture of never enough. Mm-hmm. We understand that scarcity is bringing about shame, comparison, and disengagement, mm-hmm. and that vulnerability is the core uh, of meaningful human experience, and that's wholehearted living. Right. So um, I'm going to read you her definition of vulnerability. She says, I define vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. All right? Mm-hmm. Um it starts to make sense that we dismiss vulnerability as weakness only when we realize that we've confused feeling with failing and emotions with liabilities. Oh, yeah. God. Slam yeah. dunk, Brene. Right? Because if you think about love, if you wake up every day loving somebody who may or may not love you back, whose safety you can't ensure, who may stay in your lives or may leave without a moment's notice, that's vulnerability. Love is uncertain. Yeah. Everything is uncertain, Everything honestly. is uncertain. My God, yes. And she says, it's scary, and yes, we're open to being hurt, but can you imagine your life without loving or being loved? I mean, yes, fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so a lot of what she did in her research was talk to people of many different age groups, backgrounds, genders, et cetera, Great. and ask them. And one of the things she asked was to finish this sentence stem, vulnerability is blank. And here are just some replies. I'm going to mm-hmm. just read a couple. Great. Sharing an unpopular opinion, standing up for myself, asking for help, saying no, helping my 37-year-old wife with stage four breast cancer make decisions about her will, initiating sex with my wife, initiating sex with my husband, hearing how much my son wants to make first chair in the orchestra and encouraging him while knowing it's probably not going to happen, saying I love you first and not knowing if I'm going to be loved back, mm. the first date after my divorce, getting fired, trying something new, bringing my new boyfriend home, getting pregnant after three miscarriages, waiting for the biopsy to come back, admitting Mm. I'm afraid, stepping up to the plate again after a series of strikeouts, telling my CEO we won't make payroll next month, laying off employees, standing up for myself and for friends when someone else is gossiping, being accountable, asking for forgiveness. So she says, do these sound like weaknesses? No, they sound like really, really hard things to do. Yes. And to go through. Yeah. Um, And she says, vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Oh. Yeah. I I am being quiet this episode because I am absorbing. I'm trying to absorb everything you're giving me. And it sounds like in every single one of those statements, there was like a primal desire or compassion for someone else. Like even firing the employees, it's like Ugh, there's you a feel dis- for that person. Yeah, yes. yeah. You feel for that person or like wanting to initiate sex with my wife. It's like there's something you you're saying I want something that only someone else can may not a, get it. a need that only somebody else can meet. For I may me. not get it, or they may be mad at me. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think anybody would say, Well, you're weak for wanting to initiate sex or you're weak for laying off employees. Yeah. 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 But you're sort of giving the decision making or the power to someone else. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes in vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're really talking about hard things, having hard conversations. Yeah. Um, So then she says, when we ask the question, how does vulnerability feel? The answers were equally as powerful. Mm. It's taking off the mask and hoping the real me isn't too disappointing. Not sucking it in anymore. It's where courage and fear meet. Sweaty palms and a racing heart. A lump in my throat and a knot in my chest. Being all in. It feels so awkward and scary, but it makes me feel human and alive. Mm. Freedom and liberation. That terrifying point on a roller coaster when you're about to tip over the edge and take the plunge. 
infinitely terrifying and achingly necessary. It feels like free falling, like the time between hearing a gunshot and waiting to see if you're hit and letting go of control. And there's more, more in here, but those are all wonderful, right? And she said over and over and over we did hear that it feels like naked. It does feel like naked. Can uh, I I would like to take a moment yes. to reflect back on when we first started airing episodes. Yes. Just a couple months ago. Um I was terrified. Yeah. And I I remember you and I were were calling and texting each other because you know, even when it's like oh, we don't even know if anyone's going to listen, if it's more than just our moms. Right. <laughs> if it, you know, but what I found so terrifying and still do in moments about this process and even even this project and this podcast is it's not – whereas acting is someone else's words, it's a character, there's sort of a built-in protection. Yeah. And I think that's why so many people are attracted to acting is because it lets you be vulnerable and connected and brave. But there still is a, a connection mask. where it's a mask and you're bringing some of yourself to it but not your whole yeah. your whole truth. And this podcast was particularly terrifying for me. I almost called you to be like – Let's just scrap the whole thing and just like just never air the episodes because it's it's just me. Yeah. There's no one else's words. Nobody else wrote this. I am not performing. If people do not like it, they are not liking me as a human being. And yeah. that's okay. Yeah. But it's extra scary. But then the flip side of that is when people respond positively and they're really resonating to your most authentic self. Yeah. And I I also I'm I'm so glad we're doing this podcast. I love it. Yeah, um, me too. And I I I I agree with what you're saying, and it it is scary. And I also um I I used to view it as a weakness, right? I used to view emotions as failings, right? Mm. I remember this when I was reading this book. the The story that came to mind is when. After I finished graduate school and I was moving up to Chicago, I had been living back in Champaign for a couple of years at the U of I. And, like, I I love that town. There's a lot about I love that, right? But it was time to go. And I was feeling that push-pull of, like, wanting to stay but needing to go and yeah. wanting to go. Yeah. And so when I was packing up and getting ready to go, I was sad and I was crying. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to cry. And I was, like, telling yeah. myself it was stupid. And yeah. my mom said— Honey, you're tenderhearted. It's okay. And I was like, I'm not tenderhearted. That's stupid. You're totally tenderhearted. <laughs> I'm, I, I mean, I said that as I had packed my stuffed animal, uh-huh. right? Brownie, who is still on my Brownie. bed, right? I bought him with my own money when I was five. Hi, like Brownie. He's the best. And so at that time, like, I really viewed emotions and vulnerability as a weakness, and I mm. don't anymore. So I love the work that I've done. But it... It, it, it you can't engage. I, I like what she's saying. Like you can't have a wholehearted life. You can't be present. You can't engage unless you're willing to put the skin in the game. That's right. That's exactly right. I love. I love that you said that. And I. I will say. I. I don't have a problem being vulnerable. I. 
definitely wear my heart on my sleeve. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that I don't have moments and days and weeks sure. where I'm defensive and closed off sure. and whatever. But in general, I just like to skip to the truth of it because I hate small talk so much. So when I'm meeting somebody new for the first time that's maybe like kind of a professional setting or like a new friend, not like in a meeting meeting. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to drinks and somebody is like, hey, hey, how are you? Or Trader Joe's cashier is like, how's your day? I will tell them if it sucks. <laughs> or I will sit down and say, you know what? I feel really stretched thin and I'm You will sit down out. in the middle of the or, Trader Joe's checkout line. Just right. sit down. And I'll say, everyone do a breathing exercise. No, 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 <laughs> not at all. Um, but I do find that some people recoil a little bit. But for like, I would say 75 to 80% of people go, oh, me too. I'm glad yeah. you said something. Now I feel safe. Because you are being open and kind of putting your neck out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, when she's talking about, too, about um, when we want to connect, sometimes like this dichotomy is that we want to experience others' vulnerability, but we don't. But we don't want to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But it's just like it just doesn't work that way. It's like a chicken and egg. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. she has a little vulnerability prayer that she uses. Oh, what is it? And I like it. She used it um, right before her TED Talk. That oh. she was, she's like, I was standing backstage and I was freaking out. And this is what she says. Give me the courage to show up and let myself be seen. Oh, to let yourself be seen. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think it was in voice class. It was in, in acting class or voice class where we just had to sit there. For like a minute in silence and not say anything, not break the tension with humor, nothing, but just be seen. And Did you what have to look like people to in the eye? Feel seen. I think so. That's... Yeah, we d- we had to like engage in a meaningful way. It is one of like instant fight or flight. Mm-hmm. If you want to be instantly flooded with adrenaline, just let someone really look in your eyes and not look away, or have an entire class full of people doing that, Ooh. whole room full of people. That's a lot. But it's really powerful, and yeah. it's amazing how many of us think we want to be seen or tell ourselves or really do want to be seen. And the second we have an opportunity, we check out. Yeah, no, we don't. By fidgeting, by looking away, by – it's amazing. So that's the first myth, um, that vulnerability is weakness. Yeah. Okay? Um, The myth number two is I don't do vulnerability. Okay? Uh Um, And she says, if if that's you, ask yourself these questions, which are, number one – What do I do when I feel emotionally exposed? Number two, how do I behave when I'm feeling very uncomfortable and uncertain? And number three, how willing am I to take emotional risks? Mm. So she's like, look, before starting this work, my honest answers would have been scared, angry, judgmental, controlling, perfecting, manufacturing certainty for all of them, right? Mm -hmm. And um, But she says that after doing this work, you know, she has tools and she has things um, that she can do, which mm-hmm. I think is is super, super helpful because regardless of our willingness to do vulnerability, it does us. That's what she says. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When we pretend that we can avoid vulnerability, we engage in behaviors that are often inconsistent with who we want to be. Say that one more time. When we pretend that we can avoid vulnerability, we engage in behaviors that are often inconsistent with who we want to be. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a choice to experience vulnerability. The only choice is how we're going to respond when we're confronted with this. So that's myth number two, that I don't do vulnerability. Myth number three is vulnerability is letting it all hang out. 
meaning like you just tell everyone everything all the time. Mm -mm. And she says, that's wrong. It's based on mutuality and requires boundaries and trust. It's not oversharing, not purging, and it's not the celebrity-style social media information dumps. Yeah. It's about sharing our feelings and experiences with people who have earned the right to hear them. I love that she said earned because it does feel like— it's a thing that you can turn on and off. Mm-hmm. You can be kind to certain people and not kind to others. Mm-hmm. You can have patience for a young child, but maybe not for your spouse. Yeah. You know, it's like vulnerability is like it's all about the ability to be able to use it when it serves you most. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that we don't owe anybody anything with our stories and that not everybody is good to share your story with. No. And if you share everything with everybody, then what? What makes it special? Yeah. What's saving yourself for your partner or your friend or your sister? Yeah. And also, this reminds me of, I'm probably going to mess up this quote, but it's something like, your body, your body. Your choice. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. (laughs) And also, your body will cry the tears your eyes refuse to shed. So it's, it's it's this idea that like. If you never have a place to be vulnerable, if you never have somebody to get out your emotions with, that stress and oh, it not having somewhere. that outlet, it goes somewhere. Yeah. You will have irritable bowels or you will have, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, I my butt is crying to that's tears right. that I did it. No, but really it's like it might, your pelvic floor might carry all your stress yeah, or, or your like breathing you have to might go to mess the chiropractor. up. Yes. You have to, I, I totally agree. The fourth myth, she says, is that we can go it alone. Not true. Vulnerability requires connection, right? Mm-hmm. Like um it's the connection and engagement which is what is a, what vulnerability is all about. And I would expand on that statement. I fully agree. I don't think anybody does anything alone. There I was just I poop alone. Thank God. Thank you. Do you not poop alone? Never. No. Tandem toilets is what I call them. Oh, Zach, I'm learning a lot about you. That's right. Special order. So we No, I was just chatting about this with Zach. I think there's this myth or this image that's perpetuated, and I bought into it up until like two years ago, yeah. which is that people do things alone. Like we see actors as the face of movies, but there is an entire village yeah. behind these people. There's agents and managers working yeah. to get them auditions. There's casting directors fighting for them. There's crew lighting them. There's makeup artists. There's speech writers. There's the writers who wrote the script. There's their co— you know. And that's just acting. And I, I've realized that I, I don't do anything alone. Everything I've ever accomplished has been because I've had support by my family, my friends. I have a writing partner. You're my co-host. I have a life partner. Yeah. I've got coworkers. Literally nothing is accomplished. I can't think of one person on this planet who accomplished something of real true meaning completely on their own even like Deepak Chopra or Eckhart Tolle it's like they had people around them helping them and perspective and mentors and the you know the people they learned from before and it's like I I don't know that really speaks to me I don't think anybody does anything alone and that's something that's been on my mind this week so I'm glad that it's coming up in this text you guys talked about that on your tandem toilet that's right there's an SNL sketch about this I'm positive Uh, I think it's like the toilet for lovers. Um, Okay. (laughs) We're on to chapter three. Understanding and combating shame or defense against the dark arts, as she calls it. (laughs) Listen, she says, shame derives power from being unspeakable. If we speak shame, it begins to wither. And this is the truth. If you've felt a shame, 
you know that you just want to hold it yourself. You don't want anyone to know about it. You don't want anyone to know about how you feel. And the minute that you unburden or share it with somebody who is worthy of that, who has earned the right to hear and and bear witness to your story, Mm -hmm. it does lighten the load. But shame is such a trap because we think that if it's shame because we're afraid we're unlovable. If anybody knows this thing about me yeah. or this thing I did or this thing I feel, I will be unlovable. So on the opposite end of shame is like connection. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So um, she says, imagine you created something like an article, a project, a piece of art. Um, sharing it requires vulnerability but it's an essential part of wholehearted and engaged living. Mm -hmm. But if you are raised to attach self-worth to how it's received, then you either do not share it completely or you're crushed when they don't accept it completely. That's right. Yeah. And I'm going to give you a quick primer on shame from her. Please. And as I've often said, I was raised in the Midwest, so I am raised on shame, and Mm -hmm. I am very familiar with this. Um, So I I said, you know, she knows what she's talking about. Um, What is shame and why is it so hard to talk about it? Um, And she says, if you're pretty sure that shame doesn't apply to you, keep reading. Um, Here are the shame one, two, threes. We all have it. Shame is universal and one of the most primitive human emotions that we experience. The only people who don't experience shame lack the capacity for empathy and human connection. Mm. Here's your choice. Fess up to experiencing shame or admit that you're a sociopath. Ah, Quick note, this is the only time that shame seems like a good option. (laughs) Number two, we're all afraid to talk about shame. Yeah. And number three, the less we talk about shame, the more control it has over our lives. So she diagnoses shame is the fear of disconnection. Mm -hmm. It's the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal we've not lived up to or a goal we've not uh, uh, accomplished makes us unworthy of connection or unlovable, like you said. Um, I'm unlovable. I don't belong. And Mm -hmm. here's the definition of shame that emerged from her research. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Mm -hmm. It's literal. If the tribe does not accept me. Yeah. I will die. Yeah. It's like the beginning of human existence. Have you have you seen Big Mouth on Netflix? I love Big Mouth. I love Big Mouth so much. So there they personified shame mm-hmm. in the most brilliant way. I was like jumping up and down in my living room. Um, the actor who plays Lupin in the Harry Potter movies is the shame wizard. And it's literally this like slinky wizard that sort of stands over the shoulders of these prepubescent or these kids going through puberty in the animated series Big Mouth on Netflix. Shout out to Nick Kroll and his whole team. Nick Uh, and John Mulaney. Oh my God. Everyone. It's Jesse Klein. Mm -hmm. They're so freaking good. Um, But this wizard sort of is like, are you sure you want to tell him you like him? (laughs) Maybe he'll abandon you forever and you'll never have friends. And you see, to see the personification of shame is so powerful because it's like, oh, that's ridiculous. And no. And you're like rooting for these kids. Oh, I can't recommend it enough. I think the shame wizard pops up in season two or maybe like the end of season one. I think it's season two. Oh, so So worth it. Um, Okay. So... She um, she names 12 shame categories that emerged from her research. I won't name them because 
you you probably all could list them if you really thought about it. Right. Um, again, she has people fill in the blanks. It's all really good. And um, FYI, researchers have found that as far as the brain is concerned, physical pain and intense experiences of social rejection hurt in the same way. That's so interesting. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So when you define shame as an intensely painful experience, we're not kidding. Um, emotions can hurt and cause pain. Neuroscience mm. advances confirm what we've known all along. Stam. Okay. So <laughs> we need to untangle shame, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment. And just to kind of let everybody know, guilt is I did something bad. Mm-hmm. Shame is I am bad. Uh, so when people kind of tangle those two, it gets really, really crazy. So she gives this quick example of like, say that you made plans with a friend to meet them for lunch and you completely forgot. Mm. Now, if you feel guilt, you'll be like, oh, that was so stupid. I can't believe I did that. I'm a good person, but I fucked up. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Can I meet you late? Like, you'll start to problem solve. Mm -hmm. If you feel shame, you'll be like, I'm a horrible person. I'm a terrible friend. I who who would ever want to be friends with me after something like because that? Because I do things like this. Yeah, and yeah. like I, that was so thought. I'm I'm thoughtless, uh, right? Like you you attribute the qualities to yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I relate to that. Uh-huh. Hard. We've I that fundamentally was flawed. My entire twenty. So she says, <laughs> um, I get it. Shame's bad. What do we do about mm-hmm. it? And the answer is shame resilience. Note that shame resistance is not possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. As long as we care about connection, the fear of disconnection will always be a powerful force in our lives, Mm -hmm. and the pain caused by shame will always be real. So what we need to do is build up shame resilience. uh, resilience. And so she says there's four elements of this. And the steps don't always happen in this order, Mm -hmm. but they ultimately lead us to empathy and healing. One, recognizing shame and understanding its triggers. Okay, it's biology and biography. Can you physically recognize when you're in the grips of shame, feel your way through it, and figure out what Mm -hmm. messages and expectations triggered it? Two. Did, did your oh. insides liquefy? Do you feel the searing hot burn of like, humiliation? Do you, do you know where you feel shame? I feel shame either like a lump in my throat or sometimes in the pit of my stomach. Yeah, it depends on the situation because sure. I think I have different types of shame. Yeah. Um, but if if a boss or someone I care about is like, hey, can we talk immediately? Like adrenaline filled lumps in the throat and this in my stomach. Yeah. But also sometimes it's like a full body burning. Yes. Like my whole skin is on fire. I also think I used to get like a sensation of cold, like I would get cold all over. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Two, practicing critical awareness. Can you reality check the messages and expectations that are driving your shame? Are they realistic, attainable? Are they what you want? to be or what you think others need and want from you. Three, reaching out. Are you owning and sharing your story? We can't experience empathy if we're not connecting. Mm -hmm. Four, speaking shame. Are you talking about how you feel and asking for what you need when you feel shame? I would like to give a shout out to... Molly Hockey. Yes. Who has a podcast called Sperm Cast. It's so good. It is her um, search for a sperm donor. Her when, journey to becoming a parent. Yeah. And when, when the podcast starts, she's 39 and single, and her life just hasn't turned out the way she thought it would, but she still wants a child. And so she's going about it, um, you know, sort of the modern, non traditional way. But there was an episode recently, um, she's in season two right now, where she uh she kind of shares her own shame around not 
being able to get aroused without watching porn. Yeah. And it was such a compelling episode because you could hear the shame in her voice. And she was talking about how her cheeks were getting red and she was feeling hot all over. But her sharing that made me feel less alone. And it made me feel less worried about things I'm ashamed of because here she is sharing this thing that she thinks makes her this terrible person and human and that for me just made me go wait a second she's sharing this thing that is so so hard for her and I'm sitting here going oh my god I wish I could hug you like you're being so vulnerable and so sweet and I just want to take care of you and I don't love you any less for saying that if anything I love you more for for saying that I loved my group therapy experience like I did you do group therapy oh my god for years did it not make you want to tear your eyes out because I feel like I would want to tear my eyes out no it made me I mean parts of it were tough yeah But honestly, being able to share and experience that connection and empathy really reduced my shame on such a tremendous level. It was wonderful. I I cannot recommend group therapy enough. I love that. Yeah. I feel like it's like improv. It depends who's in the group. I mean, a lot of that is that, but also you can't control who's out in your life triggering your shame. Oh, yeah. No, that, yeah, I guess that's true. You know true. what I mean? Yeah. So learning how to kind of interact with people who may or may not trigger your shame is really helpful. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so it says when we feel shame, we're hijacked by our limbic system, and that prefrontal cortex kicks Ooh, into fight or flight. Yes, it does. Survival, not reasoning or connection. Um, and there is a great animated version of her talk about empathy. I think it's about, like— it has like ladders, and I want to say a bear. I can't remember, but I if, love anything that's it's animated so in that way. Um, she has some cool sections on how men and women experience shame differently, which I think is really cool. Oh, and she says just as much as experiencing shame is is damaging, perpetrating shame is also damaging. Oh yeah, um, especially to a partner or a child. Yeah. Like we can apologize, but it leaves marks. Yeah. Okay, so now we know what shame is. Now we know kind of what to do about it. So chapter four, the vulnerability armory. And what she says is as children, we learn to protect ourselves from vulnerability. And now as adults, we have to learn how to take off that armor, show up, and let ourselves Mm -hmm. be seen. Yeah. So she talks about um, a couple shields and antidotes to those shields. And then there are some lesser frequented shelves in the armory that we'll talk about at the end. So shield number one is called foreboding joy. And foreboding joy is that people feel they're at their most vulnerable when they're feeling joy. Which reminded me of the five-second rule. Yes. Mm -hmm. So she says some people describe this as rehearsing tragedy or perpetual disappointment. She says, but we're just trying to beat vulnerability to the punch. We don't want to be blindsided by hurt. Wait, is this sort of like when somebody's like, oh, my God, I hear that amazing thing happened to you, and you somehow diminish it and are like, well, it hasn't happened yet, or... or No, but close. This is more like, she says, when people are... um, When people are at their happiest or like she she asked people what is the time that you are most um vulnerable and some of the things they responded with are like standing over my children while they're sleeping knowing how good I've got it loving my job spending time with my parents getting engaged going into remission so it should be these things that are joyful oh but they create a sense of vulnerability oh 
Got so, like, it. remember okay. in Five Second Rule when she was trying, her daughter was trying on prom dresses. Yes. And she had that moment where she was, like, she's flooded with, yeah. yeah, and then she, five, four, three, two, went out of it. Brene has a different approach, okay. which is to um, practice gratitude. She says, joy comes to us in ordinary moments, and we risk missing out on joy when we get too busy chasing down the extraordinary. Be grateful for what you have and don't squander joy. So she has this— Easier said than done, though. It sure is. It sure is. But basically, be grateful for what you have, meaning um, don't shrink away from the joy of your child because I've lost mine kind of example. So like— be grateful for what you have. Just because I may have suffered a loss doesn't mean that you don't, you can't enjoy yours mm-hmm. if you still have it. Um, we can't prepare for tragedy and loss. Don't squander joy. We can't prepare for tragedy and loss. When we turn every opportunity to feel joy into a test drive for despair, we actually diminish our resilience. Softening into joy is uncomfortable. It's scary. It's vulnerable. But every time we allow ourselves to lean into joy and give in to those moments, we build resilience and we cultivate hope. That's really, it's really interesting. I guess there's a couple concepts at play that I'm trying to make sense of. Mm -hmm. The first is like, oh, yeah, it can be hard to feel joy. But then the thing that it sounds like she's saying on top of that is... When you're at these moments of joy, it reminds you of what you can lose. Yeah. Is that what it is? That's the vulnerability. Okay, okay. That's what happens every time I experience joy. Well, I always try to diminish it. She has a, um, well, it's a very human experience. Mm. Your brain is just trying to beat vulnerability to the punch. Right. So she has this thing that she does, and I would um, invite you to try. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and say I think I know what your homework is. Oh, God. When you feel yourself doing this, literally say out loud, I'm feeling vulnerable and I'm so grateful for blank. Oh. Because, again, it's really hard for the brain to experience two very divergent things at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I'm feeling vulnerable. I'm so grateful for blank. I have to say, uh, I think th- this might come easier to somebody who has not experienced sudden loss. Yeah. Because it's like when you do know that the rug... And the world can be slipped out from underneath your feet on a moment's notice. It's hard to ever go back to the trust you had before. And I I will, I will try this. I will try to say it. But it it is like, it almost feels like that circuitry is not just wired, but like completely cemented 20 feet underground in my brain. I just kicked Misty under the table. And And now she is gently stroking the top of my foot with her I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong. And I, I, again, you know, I definitely don't agree with people applying maxims to everything. You got to make it work for you. If I'm thinking about what Brene might say, it's that in order to build up your vulnerability and your your tolerance for vulnerability mm-hmm. that foreboding joy is uh armor against vulnerability and yeah. being able to combat that from time to time is going to only increase your wholeheartedness and your ability to engage yeah. with life and again i you know what i'm the first to say to say like this bullshit it doesn't work Well, but also, how do you, like, for me, my definition of joy is sort of a state of being. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm feeling joyful, that might 
mean I'm joyful for a whole day. So or this a is just in those moments of foreboding joy. Well, no, no, no. But foreboding joy is my every joy. Yes, I love so that. So what I okay. <laughs> thank you. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is like in in thinking about only being vulnerable with those who have earned it, mm-hmm. I think that can also be an obstacle to pure, unadulterated joy. Because if I if something great happens to me in the morning while I'm driving to work, I maybe don't want to walk into work totally feeling joyous because everybody will go, Why are you so happy? And what's happening for you? And and I maybe don't want to share it with those who haven't earned it. So I'm curious what she would say about how do you live in joy but not just share it with whoever. That's interesting. I don't know. And I think I that's think one of the reasons I squash it down. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, hmm. Let's put that on the back burner because I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, her example is like, she's like, look, this can be awkward in the middle of a conversation, but it's better than the alternative, which is catastrophizing and controlling. Mm-hmm. So, for example, she says um, her husband Steve told her that he was thinking about taking the kids to his family's farmhouse in Pennsylvania while she was out of town for work. She immediately thought it was a great idea until she started boarding the crazy train of, oh, my God, I can't let them fly without me. What if something happens? And she said, rather than picking a fight or being critical or making up something to quash the idea without revealing my unreasonable fears, that's a terrible idea. Airfare is really high right now. That's selfish. I want to go, too. Uh She just said, vulnerability, vulnerability. I'm grateful for, for the kids getting to spend alone time with you and explore the country outside. Mm. So Steve smiled. He's well aware of my practice and he knew I meant it. Before I put this research on counter countering foreboding joy to practice, I never knew how to get past that immediate vulnerability shudder. I didn't have the information to get from what I feared to how I actually felt and to what I really craved. Gratitude fueled joy. Mm. So I don't know if that's helpful. No, I love that. I'll try it. I'll definitely try it. It seems easier to for joy to happen on the weekends when I'm not around coworkers. <laughs> yeah. Or you you know what? I'll offer this. You can yeah. text me. I'm feeling vulnerable and I'm grateful for. You know yeah. what I mean? Whenever you want. Or you could just write it down or you could say yeah. it to yourself. I do think saying it out loud is powerful for shame. But... Oh, no, no, no. I'll say it out loud. What I mean is literally like if I'm feeling joy, I'm going to have a big smile on my face. My yeah. body language is going to be light. That's great. But if I'm around a shit ton of other people, that's the problem. I'm going to say that's that's a min, that's a mini so conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Because we'll I check love it. We'll check in on the homework. Life. Okay, great. Um next shield, perfectionism. Hey Misty. Hey girl. Perfectionism is not striving for excellence. <laughs> it's a defensive move. It's the belief that if we do things perfectly and look perfect, we can minimize or avoid the pain of blame, judgment and shame. We think that this huge shield is protecting us, but it's preventing us from being seen. Perfectionism is not self-improvement. At its core, it's about earning approval. And somewhere along the way, being praised for achievement and performance, perfectionists adopted the belief system that they are what they accomplish and how well they accomplish it. Mm. Perfectionism is not the key to success. In fact, research shows that perfectionism hampers achievement and is correlated with depression, anxiety, addiction, and life paralysis and missed opportunities. Damn. And perfectionism is not a way to avoid shame. It's a form of shame. Shit. Oh, my God. I've never heard that. She defines perfectionism as a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought. If I look perfect and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. Damn. 
I said, isn't that just being a woman? Um, it's self-destructive <laughs> because perfection doesn't exist. And it's addictive because when we fail, we feel it's because we weren't perfect enough. So it kind of like drives mm-hmm. us to do yeah, it again yeah, and better. Yeah, 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 yeah. She says, the antidote is to appreciate the beauty of cracks. Self-kindness, yeah. common humanity, and mindfulness. There's this self-compassion inventory. I took it. It's really good. Um, and more research online from Dr. Kristen Neff. And it's at self-compassion.org. We'll put that in the notes, too. Oh, great. Um, and then from Voltaire, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Um, shield number three, numbing. Now, if you're wondering about addiction and thinking this is, isn't is you, not so. She says one of the most universal numbing strategies is, quote, crazy busy. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, hold on. I got to speak to this for a second. So every time I get crazy busy and then I finally have a moment of quiet, I get super fucking sad. And I mean to the point where like I just stop and I weep. And I think – Sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm so busy. I made myself cry because I am an introvert. And that way I do recharge by by quiet alone time. Um, But most of the time I think it's that my monkey mind knew that I was feeling sad about something. And so I just stayed crazy, crazy busy. So I didn't have a moment to be alone with my thoughts. Yeah. She's like, listen, when 12-step programs get a 12-step for crazy busy, they're going to need football stadiums. Oh my God, she's so right. So she's like phones or drinks or smoking or whatever it is mm-hmm. that we're busy with mm-hmm. keeps us busy instead of looking vulnerable, which leads to shame, which leads to disconnection and then using something to numb out. So what happens when your self-help podcast is the thing that's impeding you from self-help? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Well, her antidote. That's not even what I'm really busy with. I know. Okay. Her antidote is setting boundaries, finding true comfort and cultivating your spirit. Wholehearted living people actually feel their feelings. They learn to stay mindful about numbing behaviors and learn to lean into the discomfort of their emotions. And they connect worthiness with boundaries. What? I love that last sentence. Yes. If we want to fully experience love and belonging, we must believe that we are worthy of love and belonging. (sighs) Okay, I get it. Uh, I need some work to do. Um, She... Talks briefly about shadow comforts, which is a frantic attempt to soothe yourself. It's not what you do, but why you do it that makes a difference. So the invitation is to think about the intention behind our choices and, if helpful, discuss these with family, close friends, or helping professional. Like what you were saying about making yourself busy. Wait, what's an example of a shadow comfort? Like um, uh, taking a drink, um, eating some chocolate, watching reality TV, scheduling yourself to be crazy busy. It's that... Are my choices comforting and nourishing my spirit, or are they temporary reprieves from vulnerability and difficult emotions that are ultimately diminishing my spirit? It's like uh, it's like this last weekend when I was – I probably could have had some downtime, but instead I chose to frantically give myself a manicure – or sometimes I'll be so fucking tired, but I'll put on a face mask, like a Korean face, and do a little little spa moment because I don't think – I tell myself, like, oh, it's self-care, but I think yeah, I, this is really resonating with me because it doesn't feel like, oh, it's self-care and I'm getting a lot of joy out of this. It does feel a bit like I don't want to feel the things I'm feeling, but I yeah. don't I don't reach for booze, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. I don't reach for cigarettes. I reach for 
distraction. The nail. You reach for the bottle. The nail polish bottle. That's right. <laughs> well, I think your question is, do those actions lead to wholeheartedness or do they leave you feeling empty and searching? I would say empty and searching and So that she would call that a shadow comfort. Yeah. Empty and searching, but with gray nails. Yeah. Um, here Shiny. are just quickly some lesser frequented shelves in the armory. Viking or victim. Either you are... Uh, you're the victor or you're a loser. Right? Uh-huh. And emotions are not a, not, a, not a victor, right? Yeah, well, which Mark Manson would say it takes the same amount of ego mm-hmm. to be either the victim or, like, the greatest person in the world or the worst person in the world. So she says the antidote is to redefine success, um, uh, to reintegrate vulnerability and seek support. Then another um, uh, thing that we – another kind of armor – that we use is called letting it all hang out. Mm. And there's two kinds. Floodlighting, which is where, like, you just meet somebody and you're like, I know I hit, we've, we haven't met, but I'm just going to tell you everything. You're, I feel like we're going to be best friends. And you dump on somebody. Whoa. Um, the antidote is clarifying intention, setting boundaries, and cultivating a connection. So questions to ask would be like, why am I sharing this? What outcome am I hoping for? What emotions am I experiencing? Do my intentions align with my values? Those kind of questions. Then the second kind of letting it all ha- hang out is called the smash and grab, which oh. is where like you see somebody's <laughs> like, like purse a, and you smash their window exactly. and grab it. Or, exactly. You see somebody's open invitation to connect and you take advantage of it and take as much as you can in that moment. Um, And she Mm -hmm. says the antidote is questioning your intentions again. Just like we were talking about with Wait, how is that different from the dump? So floodlighting is, I don't think that person opened up any opportunity. Oh, and you just, oh. You just dump it. Yeah. Oh, I've been on the receiving end. Mm -hmm, We all have. Mm -hmm. Um. I've been on the giving end of that when I was young and wasted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, then here's another one I like. It's called serpentining. And she talks about how the belief that you can outrun an alligator, right? That Oh, yeah. The, yeah. If you zigzag run. That's what it's, I was taught. I grew up in Florida. Uh-huh. It's dodging vulnerability when it would actually take you less effort to face it head on. <laughs> okay. Like, oh, yeah. And it looks like controlling a situation, backing out, pretending it's not happening, pretending mm-hmm. you don't care. Yep. The antidote is being present, paying attention, and moving forward. Okay. Um, the last uh, armor is cynicism, criticism, cool, and cruelty. Okay. And that's where you just kind of poke yeah. at it, right? I know a bunch of cool shields. Uh-huh, uh-huh. She says the antidote is tightrope walking, practicing shame, resilience, and reality checking. Tightrope walking. Uh-huh. And she what has a beautiful image. She keeps it on her desk at work, and it's of a tightrope walker, Um over a net. So basically she says, when we stop caring about what people think, we lose our capacity for connection. When we become defined by what people think, we lose our willingness to be vulnerable. If we dismiss all the criticism, we lose out on important feedback. But if we subject ourselves to the hatefulness, our spirits get crushed. God, it's, it's a tightrope. It sounds like you can't fucking win. Well, it's a tightrope. Shame resilience is the balance bar. And the safety net below is the one or two people in our lives who can help us reality check the criticism and cynicism. Mm. So she is very visual. She has a picture of a person on a tightrope hanging over her desk to remind her to work to stay open at the same and at the same time keep boundaries in place with that are worth the energy and risk, mm. right? Um, so sounds hard. It is hard. Sounds it's really, really hard. Fucking hard. Vulnerability is hard. It is. And I, by the way, just in practicing accurate self appraisal slash awareness, 
I have been sitting here listening to this book for the majority with my arms folded, with my body language turned away from you and my arms folded, even though I don't have a problem with crying or expressing my feelings, I still am having well, look, resistance to vulnerability. But she said at the beginning, nobody wants to feel vulnerable. Yeah, but even even though I, f- I do feel practiced at it and comfortable with it, I am still like literally recoiling sure. from what you're saying. Because we're, all, we're learning how we can all be better at being vulnerable. Mm. I love you. Um, all right, so now we're into these last three chapters. Chapter <laughs> Is anyone else as uncomfortable as I am? Yeah, are you listening with your arms folded? Please email us and let us or know. Or like, or... Is your stomach tight right now? Are you noticing any tension anywhere in your body? You know what I would love for you to do? Take a picture of yourself listening to this podcast. Not if you're post driving. Post it on Instagram. Not if you're driving. Fine. Post it on Instagram and tag us so that we can see what your experience was like as you listen to <laughs> Show this. Show us your um, your vulnerability face. <laughs> so chapter five, mind the gap, cultivating change and closing the disengagement divide. This is all about how it's the space between practiced values and aspirational values, either at work at home, mm-hmm. at, at, at church, or wherever we practice our faith. Um, and so it's like this: we can disengage as an organization mm-hmm. when our teachers, our leaders, our bosses, our clergy don't live up to their end of the social contract. I'm oh, just gonna damn. do one quick example. Um, and uh, I'm so glad she addresses this because this is a huge, like, yeah. so this is basically like what happens when someone lets you down in a massive way. Yeah. I mean, I love she says faith minus vulnerability equals politics or worse, extremism. Dude, she is just like dropping truth bombs. So here's an example of this gap. Okay, so aspirational values are honesty and integrity, but the practice values are rationalizing and letting things slide. Mom is always telling her kids that honesty and integrity are important and that stealing and cheating in school won't be tolerated. As they pile into the car after a long grocery shop, mom realizes the cashier didn't charge her for the sodas in the bottom of the cart. Mm. Rather than going back into the store, she shrugs and says, wasn't my fault. They're making a mint anyway. So there's a gap yeah. between what we say and what we do. Right. And so that's where it helps disengage. So on a family level, that would disengage mm-hmm. the children. Now, mm-hmm. I would briefly tell a story about the one time that I stole. Um, I was very young. We were in the back of our station wagon, which we called Princess Leia. And <laughs> I had taken a penny candy, if you'll remember the Brock's penny candy displays. Yes. And I had hid it in my pocket. And I was in the very back. And my brother was in the middle. My mom was driving. And my brother, with his supersonic hearing, heard me crinkle, crinkle. Like, yeah. You know, just, yeah. Here we go. Yeah. Just barely... Mm-hmm. trying mm-hmm. to unwrap that and he immediately whipped over the side and was like what do you have and I was like nothing go away stay and he was like mom Lisa stole a candy and I'm not kidding you my mom did a full U-turn across four lanes of traffic and as I remember it was like oh my god dragged my ass back there gave me a penny and said we're going in there and you're telling that you stole that and you have to pay for it and I was bawling I was like I'm sorry <gasps> and I was and so she marched my sassy ass back in there and was like what do you have to say I was like I'm so sorry I stole this and I'm sorry and the guy was like it's fine and she was like no it's not fine and I oh, never Linda. stole again I know the shame was so intense and you never saw are you having a visceral reaction to that moment right now no, because I've told that story so much. But the, it was so intense that when in middle school, my girlfriends wanted to shoplift stuff, oh. we would all go in one at a time, and I would go in and pay for my shit and tell them that I stole it. Oh, my God. I love you so much. Mm-hmm. Did it get very expensive? 
Where you're like, I cannot afford this pair of jeans. Well, as you remember, I was, I am financially privileged, so I didn't have that problem. Okay, there you go. There you go. Okay, um, chapter six, disruptive engagement, daring to rehumanize education and work. By the way, really quickly, if anybody's like, wait a second, what is Lisa talking about? On uh, on our uh, two minisodes ago, minisode seven, we talked about um, the privilege. Yeah. One of Lisa's homework was to identify her own privilege. So that's where that's coming from. Yes. If it sounds really random, just random out of she's out of, not just like, excuse me, bitch, I'm financially privileged <laughs> and moving oh, on. No, I have. By that, the way, it's a tattoo on my forehead. Yeah, that's right. Um, Okay, so disruptive engagement, daring to rehumanize education and work. She said disruptive engagement, it's called disruptive because we have to completely reexamine the idea of engagement to reignite creativity, innovation, and learning. And leaders must understand how scarcity is affecting the way we lead and work, how to engage with vulnerability and recognize and combat shame on a personal and organizational level. Now, if you're a leader or you manage people, you might really enjoy this chapter. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to cover that here. The last chapter is about wholehearted parenting, daring to be the adults we want our children to be. And so basically she's like, look, our stories of worthiness and of being enough begin in our first families. The narrative certainly doesn't end there, but what we learn about ourselves and how we learn to engage with the world as children sets a course that will either require us to spend a significant part of our life fighting to reclaim our self-worth or will give us hope, courage, and resilience for our journey. And I would say spend a lot of time in therapy. Um, And that's it. That's Daring Greatly. Lisa, oh my God. I feel like I could have been a better co-host to you this I, episode. There was a but lot. I'm sorry. Well, no, but also it's like when talking about vulnerability, I don't I don't want to crack jokes, and I don't want to. I should have done that. I should have just farted the whole, big farted I mean, the whole podcast. Like so I'm the one who is always cracking jokes. Yeah, because you're funny. No. I love you when you're because funny. Because I avoid vulnerability. Uh, oh, <laughs> My therapist used to say, oh, that's so funny. I see that you're using humor to avoid your feelings. I know. I remember you saying. And I would be like, ha, 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 ha you're so funny. Uh-huh. Now I'm feeling annoyed. Yeah, well, it's it's just she has so many profound things to say. And tell me, I, I've, I've read a couple of her books, so I could be wrong. But is this the one where she addresses how women actually perpetuate the cycle of toxic masculinity? Because it's basically like, I remember reading, and it could have been another a one of her bit. books, but There's it's a ba- little bit. It's of basically it. like we tell men in our society not to display emotions, not to be vulnerable. I think it's a particularly difficult issue for men. Yeah, and when they do finally display emotions and open up, we as women have an opportunity to support that. Or if you're like me and my and my teens and early twenties. I would just get uncomfortable and shut it down. It's, yeah. it's like when people go, well, be a man and man up. and da-da-da-da. Yeah, when she talks about how different genders experience shame, she talks yeah. a little bit about that. Well, that was really profound for me because it's, it's, you know, someone who's trying to be an intersectional feminist, I, I, I remember – thinking like I was listening to the audiobook and going I don't perpetuate the patriarchy and I don't da, da, da. It's really hard. and then We're she said that and I went oh my god like no wonder because the second a man who's been taught not to be vulnerable does stick his neck out there if he's rejected at the first or second or third time no wonder we have such toxic masculinity yeah. and, and wait till I, I my second group was a co-ed group it was really interesting. I bet. I bet. So um, that – but that part, I didn't remember any of the other stuff that you read about the book, huh. but I did remember that one part. So um, 
if if any of this is intriguing to you or if you're having a resistant reaction to it, I invite you to pick up the book because yeah. I— Listen, there's a lot to it, and uh, th- it's very practical, Patty. It's That's so... what I was just about to ask you. Did yeah. you feel like it was woo-woo at all? No, because it's all like—I mean, she talks about her research. She cites her her— you know, it's it's very practical, Patty, which I think for somebody, if you're uncomfortable with emotion, this might be a, a, a nice way Foray into, into thinking, it yeah. with some tools and strategies. Um, so what did you put into practice from this book and how did it affect you? I haven't put anything new into practice from this book. I will say that because of my 20 plus years in individual and group therapy, mm-hmm. um, I've been in it a long time. I... Um, I already have a nice group of people who have earned the right to hear my story. I have a nice support system. I have a good sense of when I'm triggered. I have a good ability to put words around shame when I'm Mm -hmm. feeling it and speak it to my friends and get feedback. Um, Did it take you a long time to get there? Oh, years. I mean, there were years in in group therapy where I didn't say a word. Because I was so didn't terrified. Say a word for years. I mean, I would say stuff, but I wouldn't share about myself. I wouldn't be uh, vulnerable about myself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I would have empathy and share about myself in relation to others, but I did not have the capacity to share about myself. Wow. So you've really been on this journey a long time. Wow. Yeah. Um, what did you? Was there anything that you hated about this book? Listen, if you don't like research-based stuff and you want mm-hmm. woo-woo, you're going to hate this book. Yeah. Um, and I feel like sometimes she's so thorough as a researcher. And I also, like, my my dad was a professor. So uh, I am very comfortable listening to people talk in that kind mm-hmm. of um, upper uh, higher education level. Right. Um, but if she can get a little lost in her own descriptions and explanations. Sure. Well, that that's where I feel like her TED Talks come in and are really helpful. Because, because they're so succinct. Yeah, they're succinct. They're practiced. She's been given lots of notes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, they're very engaging. And I think listening on this on an audiobook would be great because her voice is delightful and she communicates like a human being. You yeah. know, like she really, you feel like she's talking to her best friend when you listen to her. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Very intimate. So it sounds like this book is perfect for people who love a science-based approach, aren't super woo-woo, want practical information based on science. Yeah. Um, Do you have a listener challenge for me? Yeah, I want you to try that saying out loud when you're feeling vulnerable. Say, I am feeling vulnerable. Oh, yeah, I wrote that down. And I'm grateful for, I'm so grateful for. I'm feeling vulnerable and I'm so grateful for blank. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm feeling vulnerable right now. I am feeling vulnerable and I am so grateful for people listening to this podcast and letting me be received, even if you don't like what I have to say, I'm really grateful for the forum. And um, I'm really grateful for the people who have reached out and have said, I've related to X, Y, and Z. Great. Yeah. So, And I already feel less flight or fighty right now. Great. But I will keep doing that throughout the week and checking and seeing, like— I love it. Does it get harder? Does it get easier? I love it. That's great. You're the best. Lisa, that was awesome. Thank you. It was a lot. It's a lot, but I mean, like, that's a—how many pages is that book? Well, it's a cool— It's a thick book. It's a cool 300-plus. And it also includes—I will say it also includes um, a reading uh, guide— 
at the very end mm-hmm. for you to ask ask questions for you. Um, I love that. But I mean, you know, the last I would say fifty pages are um, citations, etc. Et As always, everybody, if you have read this book, if you've got thoughts, if you want to share how you loved it, hated it, how it helped you. Brene Brown and you want to compliment me. Brene, come on, girl. We are waiting for you for that email message. Okay, Um, Brene. That's right. You can email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, on Instagram, we are at Go Help Yourself Podcast, and on Twitter, we are at GHY Podcast. Mm-hmm. Hit us up. And by the way, we're still looking for listener stories of um, self-help fails, self-help successes. Mm-hmm. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We promise we won't plug that every single episode. It's but just we, the biz. But we will a lot. Just the biz nasty for now, y'all. Okay. Yeah. But thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being here with us, guys. Life, Life is, is abundant. abundant. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at Podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.